0: medicated people on the planet. Hunger pains, longings, cravings, desires that simply are not met by the plenty that we have. C.S. Lewis put it like this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that quote because I think it gives us a great, it's a great platform to jump into John chapter 2. John chapter 2, John is beginning to deal with Jesus' very first public display of who he is as the Messiah, as the Son of God, who's come to do for sinners what sinners could not do for themselves. And the way Jesus shows up on the scene, which I always, it's always fascinating, like, if I was Jesus, how would I announce my arrival? what would I do? I would do something spectacular. Well, Jesus goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. Very curious. But what John does when he talks about Jesus's miracle, he always uses the word a sign. That what Jesus is doing is a sign. Now a sign is something that points beyond itself. It points to a greater And so Jesus' first act in his public ministry is turning water into wine. And the question that we need to answer is, is, what is the sign pointing to? What is this greater reality that Jesus wants us to understand and to grasp? What is this sign ultimately pointing to? So before we answer that, we need to ask God for his help. So let's pray before we jump into John chapter 2. Lord Jesus, you know that we are um, desperately needy and hungry people. And we thank you that you have, um, in your kindness and in your grace, and in just your fatherly care, You give us provision for our neediness and for our hunger. And you've given to us your word, uh, which is manna from heaven. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that we might um, be nourished by your word and that you would satisfy the deep hunger pains, the thirst the desires, the longings that are inside all of our hearts by your word, through your Holy Spirit. Now, we can't, we can't feed ourselves. We can't make the hunger pains go away. So we desperately need you to, to do the work deep in our souls. So would you do that for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how would you answer this question? What is God's greatest aim for your life? Now, I know some of you, perhaps in here, don't believe in God. And first, I'm going to say that we're so glad that you're here. And we hope that this place is a place that is safe for you to investigate whether or not there is a God. But you'll have to kind of lean into that question with me. Let's say, if there is a God who does exist, what do you think his greatest aim for your life would be? Now, for some of you who've grown up in the church, you've probably tried to answer that question over the years. What is God's aim? What is his purpose for my life? For some of you, it might be that, well, God's greatest aim for my life is to just be a good person, to love my neighbor as myself, take care of the poor, to seek justice where there's injustice, you know, to wrong, to right wrongs. I did what Joyce did earlier you're in good company, okay? But maybe that's his greatest thing for me just to do what he says, to be a good person, to follow his example. Or perhaps some of you go in the other direction, like, well, God's greatest thing for my life is one of sacrifice. Take up my cross and follow him. And it's one of sacrifice and obedience and in some ways that can kind of manifest itself in our souls. We may not admit this out loud, but it's one to where God kind of becomes a cosmic killjoy or he never gives me what I want or never really gives me the desires of my hearts, you know. But God's greatest aim for me is it's just one of sacrifice. There's many different ways that we can answer that question. Now, wherever you are on that kind of spiritual spectrum, John's gospel is always about showing us what the heart of God is like. And the way John does it is by showing us the person and work of Jesus. In other words, Jesus as fully man and fully God shows us what the heart of God is like. And we find in this first sign, this first miracle what God's primary aim and desire for you and for me is. And here it is. It's your joy. That God's greatest aim and desire for you is joy. Now, in our tradition, in our Christian tradition, in the Presbyterian Church of America, we have confessions and creeds and catechisms. And catechisms are these just kind of didactic tools to help formulate and kind of question and answer form what the Bible teaches about God and about man. It's a great tool to help learn what the Bible teaches. Just kind of, you know, it's, it's very helpful. And the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is man's chief end? Like, what is, what is man's ultimate purpose in this life? And the answer that the, the, the catechism teaches, it's brilliant. And there's two parts. The first is that we are to glorify God. That in all of our life, we are to honor Him and to love Him and to glorify Him. And the second part is, and out of that, out of that glorifying Him, we will enjoy Him forever. So I don't think I'm crazy when I think that God's greatest aim for your life is for us to know what it means to enjoy him. Like, his desire for us is our joy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at two things. Very simple outline. A problem and the solution. Because we do have a problem in the text. And then there's this unbelievable solution. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. First, the problem. Verses 1 through 3. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana his mother comes to him and says, Son, there's no more wine. <laughs> there's the problem. The wine has run out. And you have to understand that in the ancient Near East, in first century Palestine, weddings were a very big deal. I mean, a very big deal. So much so that like wedding celebrations would last for days and weeks. Like people loved to celebrate and party in the first century. So these celebrations would go on forever, but if the wine would run out, it was a social embarrassment. So much so that, this is kind of crazy, and don't any of you get any ideas, but you could actually sue your host if the wine ran out. That's how much of a big deal it was in the first century. So first century folks were just as good at shaming people like we are, except they didn't have social media to do it. They just would sue their host. Can you imagine? Your Honor, they ran out of wine. Massive social embarrassment. And Jesus' first sign, his first miracle is to turn water into wine. Jesus is not only saving a dying party, but he's making it better. And the question is why? Why would Jesus save a dying party and make it better? It begins with this sign, and the sign points beyond itself. And what Jesus is doing in John chapter 2 is he's giving us a picture of the final chapter. He's giving us a picture of the final scene. You have to understand that Jesus is giving us a picture of the wedding feast, which was read in, in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25 of a time where the wine will never run out and the party will never end. One thing you have to understand about the Bible is that throughout the Old and the New Testament, the dominant metaphor that describes God's relationship to his people is one of a bridegroom and a bride. And here you have in John chapter two, Jesus's first act, his first public ministry act is a sign pointing to the great wedding feast, the great party where the wine will never run out and the party's never going to end. In other words, Jesus is trying to show us in this first sign that his greatest aim for you is our joy, the joy of being known and loved and accepted by him forever and always. And for us to know what it means then to enjoy him and to know him and to love him. In other words, John 2 is showing us that we were actually made to party. Like you and I were made to party because isn't that what we spend most of our lives doing? Like do we not spend most of our life longing to be known and loved And in some ways, that's what we're actually doing right now. Whether you're a parent, whether you're just married, whether you're in college, whether you're at work, you're trying to figure out how to be known and loved. Or put it like this, you're trying to figure out what you're partying for. And the problem that we have is that we're trying to find joy that will satisfy our hearts and everything that we go to, it never measures up. It never fulfills. It never satisfies. And Jesus is saying that our, par- our problem is that we don't know how to party because we don't know the, the why behind we party. We don't know how to party because we don't know why we party. I mean, think about it like this. Most of our parties, most of the ways in which we attempt to celebrate And find joy and love and being known and accepted are ways of escaping reality, not enjoying it. There's no greater example of this than on a college campus, right? When I was in college, I was in a fraternity. Now, don't judge me for that. But our parties were bad imitations of the party that we were made for. Because And the parties that I went to in college, we partied in order to hide. You know, we hid because we didn't like ourselves. We weren't comfortable with who we are in this world. But we hid from the sorrows of life or the expectations that perhaps have been set on us that we knew we could never live up to. So we partied in order to hide. We partied in order to forget because some of us have very deep wounds because we live in a fallen and broken world, and so we party in order to forget. It's a coping mechanism. We party because we're looking for love or friendships or community. So we go looking for intimacy, something to fill that void the void of being lonely or that sense of rejection. We long to have fun, but eventually, what happens? The party ends. The wine runs out. And it's Monday morning. And what do we do? Metaphorically, we, all we think about is the weekend. But when we can't get back to that place to hide, to medicate, to look for intimacy, longings, and this hit home for me, especially this last, I think it was maybe the winter quarter. I met with a student. And this particular student, I, 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 I had only seen them once before, and somehow we exchanged numbers and texted them for lunch and said, hey, let's go, let's go grab lunch. So we met up for lunch in, in Ivy and sat down a very unfiltered conversation, um, very candid conversation. But this student immediately said, apologized when they sat down and said, look, I'm sorry, I'm hungover. I was out the night before celebrating a friend's birthday, so you'll have to forgive me. And I said, no problem. And it was a fascinating conversation on so many levels, but one of the big takeaways was this. This particular student admitted that one of the reasons why they came to college was to experiment, to fill the void of hunger pains. And this student was attempting to fill that void with absolutely everything. Substance, with their body, you name it. And this student told me, it was, it, I was so grateful and sad at the same time, but the student told me, I know that the, the experiment that I'm actually on right now is a big lie. I know it's actually not doing what I'm hoping it's going to do. They admitted that. And then they said this, and I'll never forget this. They said, I know the trajectory that I'm on right now is only dehumanizing me. It's only dehumanizing me. That's how we party. We're no different in so many different ways than that particular student. Our parties are just bad counterfeits of the one we long for because it shows us two things, does it not? On the one hand, we have desires for good things. Think about it. We long for intimacy. We long to be known and cared for. We long to be accepted and loved. We long for pain and suffering to end. We long for friendships and deep fellowship. The reasons why we party show us that we have desires for good things. But it shows us that these parties, the ones that we go to, the ones that we throw, never satisfy because these parties, the wine will always run out and the party will always end. They never measure up. They never meet our satisfaction. In other words, the problem is we don't celebrate well because we fail to grasp that God has made us for a better party, a better feast, a party where the wine will never run out and the party's never going to end. So what do we do? What's the solution? Well, look again at verse 4. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, there's no more wine, and leave it up to Jesus to say something very weird. Woman, Kids, I don't recommend you call your mother woman. Jesus can do it, but you can't. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now what on earth is Jesus saying? Woman, my hour has not yet come. And here's what I want you to think about. Jesus is thinking about a wedding. It's just not this wedding. He's thinking about wine, but not wine at this wedding. Anytime you read in the Gospels the phrase, my hour has not yet come or my time has not yet come, is always in reference to Jesus' arrest, His crucifixion, His death. Mark 14, Jesus prays to His Father, let this hour pass. Take this cup from me. Now, think about it. How many of you have ever been to a wedding before? I'd imagine most of you probably have. I was in close to 25 weddings, and I can remember in all of those weddings, as a single person, what I what I would do like most single people do at weddings is what? I thought about my own wedding. <laughs> I would be up there thinking like, I can't wait till I'm the guy who's marrying the girl that I'm in love with. You know, that's very selfish. I, I, I you know, but that's what you do at a wedding. Even now as a married man, and when I go to weddings, what do I do? I think about my life, my own wedding. Like, oh yeah, we had these flowers. We had this food. Well, that food wasn't that great. Our food was better. And you know, y'all ever done that? Of course. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is a 30-year-old single man doing what all single people do at weddings. He's thinking about his own wedding. The day when the bridegroom of heaven will actually marry his bride. He's thinking about the great wedding feast. My hour has not yet come. He's thinking about the party where the wine will never run out. And the feast is never going to end. But you have to think about it. Weddings are costly. The best weddings are the ones that are the most lavished. You know how much Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding was? $34 million. That would have been a great wedding to go to. The best ones are the most costly, right? Right? But here's the reality. Jesus' wedding comes at a far greater cost. That is why he looks at his mom and he says, my hour has not yet come because Jesus comes to bring you great joy, but it will come at a great cost to him. Here's the beauty of what Jesus is doing when he turns water into wine. Notice where he makes the wine. He didn't make it in wineskins, but in Jewish purification jars that hold wine. These jars were used by Jews to wash themselves before they would go into the synagogue. It was a symbolic ritual act of saying that we have to self-cleanse in order for God to accept us. And do you know what Jesus is doing? He's subverting this. He's saying, no, the gospel, the good news... That I've come to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves, in order you cannot clean yourself up in order to be accepted by, by God. I have to do it for you. Jesus comes at a great cost and begins to subvert religion, the religion of self-cleansing, of basing your relationship with God on your own merit, on your own work. But the gospel is that Jesus makes you clean at the cost of his own life so that you can go and party with God. The cost of Jesus' wedding is that he drinks the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's justice for all the ways in which we have failed to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that you and I Can drink the cup of blessing. You see, it comes at a far greater cost, his wedding. And here's the beautiful thing about Christianity we've done nothing to deserve it, to earn it, to merit it, and yet God lavishes grace and forgiveness and love upon us. You know how I know that? Did you notice how much wine Jesus produced? between 150 and 180 gallons of wine. You know how many bottles of wine that is? I did the math. Now, I'm no mathematician, so if you're a math professor or math genius in here, just go with it, okay? But I think my math is correct. It's somewhere between 760 and 800 bottles of wine. I would be very impressed if anyone in here has been to a party with 800 bottles of wine. What is that showing? What is that demonstrating? It's demonstrating the fact that our God is not a cosmic killjoy, but that he longs to lavish upon his bride all of his blessings, all of his love, all of his grace, all of his mercy. He wants to lavish you. So that you know how to enjoy him. So that you know what it means to be with him. Jesus keeps a dying party going and makes it better. And he's giving us a foretaste of what's in store for all of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. So, what do we do with that? Two things. First is this, you can trust Jesus with your joy. Jesus did not come simply to give you do's and don'ts or an example to follow. Jesus came to be your bridegroom. And if you approach Jesus in any other way, you'll never find him beautiful. Because typically what happens for most of us is this, If we approach Jesus in in any other way, we'll think that when I fail, or when I go to something other than Himself to satisfy the hunger pains, when I blatantly sin against Him, when I morally mess up, and it's a public display and embarrassment and bring shame upon not just my name, but my family's name, when we. When we go down that road, we tend to think that Jesus is ready to hand us a divorce paper. But when you understand Jesus as your bridegroom, he doesn't believe in divorce. He's married to you. Which means that his love and his grace and his mercy and his acceptance is always there. Jesus becomes more beautiful. You can trust Jesus with your joy because he is ravished by your beauty, a beauty that he's given to you because the bridegroom adorns his bride with everything that she needs to be in a relationship with him. He's ravished by your beauty. So you can trust Jesus with your joy because you've had nothing to do with it. And that's actually pretty freeing. But you can also trust Jesus with your joy means that you'll party better in this life. When you know the extent of the promises that God has made to his bride through the work of Jesus Christ, it'll make you party better in this life. What do I mean? Here's a funny example. God promises us a resurrection life. Which means that if you're in Christ, you're going to be raised to new life. You're going to have a new body, and your body and soul are going to be united together, and you're going to live with God forever. That's a pretty big promise. The grave does not hold God's people. Death does not win. So yesterday, just got home from from being away, and I had, our house was in a particular shape, and I won't go into those details, but I had, I had to shampoo our carpets, okay? And I shampooed our carpets twice, okay? Now, we're in the middle of, of potty training my oldest, and after I shampooed the carpets, he had an accident on the carpet. And I kind of got really frustrated. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just, literally just shampooed the carpets. Not once, but twice. They were like pristine. And now they're not. And I kid you not, out of that frustration, not two or three hours later, my youngest son, who we're not potty training, who's, you know, in a diaper, we get him out of the bath and he kind of runs around the house in his birthday suit. And all of a sudden I walk in and there he is having an accident on the same carpet, Both my boys soiled the carpet that I just spent literally hours cleaning. And then I go and I begin to prepare for this and I realized I'm frustrated about a soiled carpet when Jesus promises me a resurrected life. You ever get frustrated in this life? God says there's everlasting forgiveness and acceptance and we as the people of God are so good at holding grudges against one another. You don't like your roommate, I get it. We can hold things against our spouse or our kids. I I get so frustrated when my three-year-old acts like a three-year-old. And Jesus promises us everlasting forgiveness and acceptance. God says there's a party that will never end where the wine will never run out. And college students, you are going to stress so much over a stupid exam. It's not stupid in that sense, but I'm saying you're going to be overwhelmed that this thing is going to be your identity if you don't get an A. And Jesus is saying, there's a feast that's never going to end where the party, where the wine's never going to run out. Trusting Jesus with your joy means that you can actually rest in this life, in the comfort of knowing that Jesus' greatest aim for you has already been accomplished, even though it hasn't been fully realized yet. You can party better in this life knowing what's in store for you. Later on, C.S. Lewis put it like this Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Infinite joy is offered to you this morning. Consider that an invitation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may our desires, our hunger pains, our longings, the cravings, May they find all of their satisfaction and joy in you. Be with us as we go to your table now. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.